Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Each week, we'll discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week, except the only caveat is it must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also be highlighting new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. I'm Mackenzie, and this is my co-host, Ian. Hello, hello. <laughs> and this week we are discussing spine number 396, The Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole from 1951. Taking it a little bit further back into <laughs> classic golden era Hollywood. With my man, Billy Wilder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a fun film to talk about. But yeah, no, Billy Wilder, I think it's going to be... This is his Criterion Connection debut of many more to come. I'm super excited. Hopefully more of his get added to the collection so I have an excuse to continue to shoehorn Billy Wilder in any chance I get. I'm excited. I uh, I know it's not in the collection, but I did pick up The Apartment just this week. I haven't watched it yet, but I will be able to probably report back next week on the show and tell you my thoughts on that one. I'm ascending. I also just picked up the 4K of that. And the second I took it out of the wrapping, the the little end broke off, like part of the plastic case broke off. And I was like, I can't believe I just bought a 4K of this movie and it broke instantly. The disc is fine, so I can still watch it. But yeah, I got a couple of Blu-rays from my parents for my birthday, which is coming up. And that happened to the master. As soon as I opened the plastic wrap, the plastic wrap from the master came off and then so did like little tiny bits of the Blu-ray case, which kind of irked me. But hey, the disc is fine. So I think we're all Gucci over here. (laughs) I love it. Speaking of movies that we are watching recently, did you watch anything on the collection, on the channel, on anything this week that you want to talk about? I didn't watch a lot of films this week, but... As is becoming the case more and more, I'm really only watching things that the channel has to offer because they have so many great films to offer. Um, So this week I watched a couple different things. Um, I have one that I'll spotlight a little bit more, but I watched um, 1983's Variety from director Bette Gordon. This is like a neo-feminist noir um, from the 80s. It's set in Manhattan. It stars, of all people, the artist Nan Golden, who was... Uh, recently spotlighted in the documentary All the Beauty and All the Bloodshed from Laura Pointress. She's not the lead of the film, but she is a uh, primary supporting character. But it's essentially about a woman who starts working at a porn theater, and she kind of starts to go through this kind of sexual awakening and become more interested in voyeurism and sexuality, herself and others. 
and she becomes obsessed with a older man who frequents the theater who may or may not be a mobster. It's uh it's it was pretty good uh watch and I found it really interesting especially the stories that were put on screen and the certain subjects that were probably way more taboo at the time uh being showcased. It was like the early 80s. I didn't love it a lot. I gave it 2 out of 5 stars on Letterbox. It's you know, it kind of falls into that same uh rut that you were talking about with like indie films in like the 70s and 80s when you were talking about losing ground last week uh the performances just weren't really there Mm. and some of the story just wasn't really there so it left a little wanting for me i also watched robert sidomax uh the killers from 1946 uh kind of got on a little old hollywood kick after taking in ace in the hole our feature film today and this was the uh first starring vehicle uh for Burt Lancaster and apparently in some of my readings it also made Ava Gardner but this is a like very textbook noir film uh Hmm. you know there's a robbery involved there's a femme fatale involved I loved it up until about halfway through where it really started to like slow down and lose its steam uh but anytime Lancaster and Gardner were on screen it was on fire so I do recommend checking it out I gave that one three out of five stars but the best thing I watched on the channel last week would have been Hive from 2021. This is by a Kosovan director named Blerta Basholi, and it's a Kosovan film. And it's essentially a film set in the present day Kosovo about kind of the community fallout from the wars that have gone on in that region. And it's about a woman moving through her very patriarchal community, trying to make her own way as her husband has been disappeared like so many other individuals during this war Mm. and it's just a really moving story and very nuanced and very carefully told it's a little bit slower than your uh average modern film uh but i thought it was really deep but i thought it was a really deeply moving character study so that's the one i recommend the most out of the films that i checked out on the channel this past week but Mackenzie. I know you weren't really able to check out a lot on the channel this week with all the life goings on. <laughs> yes. But what were you able to watch? Um, yeah, I didn't watch a ton this week, but I did revisit a Criterion collection film from a director who I think we will eventually basically cover every single one of his films. Mr. Wes Anderson, the one, the only. Most mm. of his films are in the collection outside of maybe Isle of Dogs, I think. Is there like... I think that's the only mm. one, right? There's like maybe, oh, and, and I guess French, French Dispatch, Dispatch, his most recent film. I'm sure it will eventually be in the collection. Yeah. Um, huh. But, oh, what is the name? Rachel, my fiance, was listens to a podcast that used to be called What Are Dads? And <laughs> now it is called You Are Good. And it is a sweet oh, I love film you podcast. Are good. Yeah. So Rachel listens to You Are Good a lot. And they recently did an episode on Rushmore, which is a wet, early Wes Anderson film. I believe his second after Bottle Rocket. That's correct. And um, forever ago, I you know went on my Wes Anderson journey in like the same week. And I kind of binged all of his films. And I went into Rushmore with a super closed heart because I was like, I hate teacher student things. And I, you know, we talked about it a bit. Like we become better film watchers. And I think I am a much better film watcher than I was when I was originally coming to Rushmore because I, I came into it with a lot of judgment and I don't think I let the actual themes of the film hit me. And Rachel listened to this podcast episode on You Are Good About It and was like, Mackenzie, I have not seen this Wes Anderson. I'm so fascinated by these themes of 
like kids who want to be adults and adults who never quite grow up and like all of the intricacies that come with growing up and loss and grief and identity. And I was like, wow, is Rushmore more nuanced than I give it credit for? Which is <laughs> typically how I feel about Wes Anderson films. I think they are more nuanced than he people give him credit for oftentimes. And um, we revisited Rushmore and I upped it by a whole star. I was like, mm. wow, I was really, really mean to Rushmore the first time I watched it. Um, and the thing is, I love most Wes Anderson movies. Like, basically all of them I love and yeah I just was really struck by the themes this time Jason like I I wrote this in my review I think some of the best performances in Anderson's filmography might be in this movie um I think that Bill Murray is probably better in for me in Life Aquatic um but I think Jason Schwartzman gives a beautiful performance in this movie for being so young there is a shot near the end where his glasses are taken off and he plays this this boy that's trying to be a man so much you it's just with his eyes this little moment where he becomes a little boy again and it's such beautiful nuanced acting and olivia williams who really only worked with him in this one movie is mind-blowing in this film she has a really beautifully um wonderfully acted moment where she kind of fights back tears but she isn't quite able to really express how she feels about the loss of her husband because it's very important plot point that she's a widow and I don't know I just was really impressed I was like these are some of now that I've seen the rest of his films and I'm coming back to Rushmore I think I could appreciate it more and I could appreciate the performances in it more and it's just a really impressive and really um interesting and kind of taboo script for such an early film to come kind of out of the gate like I know Bottle Rockets is first but I feel like kind of dealing with this like young boy who's in love with a teacher and the love triangle he enters with with another grown man who's like probably an alcoholic. And I just feel like there's a lot going on. And I'm very impressed that it was only his second film. And yeah, I misjudged it. And so I've remedied that. And it was really fun to revisit Wes. And I really mostly cannot wait to cover more of his movies on our podcast because I love most of them. And I just I'm, they're all there. So we can do them anytime. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to get into his films too. That was like one of my first levels of becoming a cinephile was being a big Wes Anderson fan and embarrassed to admit, but it's the only Wes Anderson film I have not seen. I think largely because of the response that you used to have to it. Oh, um, I, apologize. I, have not seen I, it I don't think I spoiled anything. I, I hope I didn't. No, I mean, it's a what? 20 year old movie at this point. What <laughs> could you really spoil that hasn't been already spoiled for me yet? But no, I'm really excited to actually watch it because I saw that review of yours come in at four and a half stars and I was like, damn. And maybe I just let the discourse get the better of me on that one. So I'll definitely need to check it out and we will certainly do it sooner or later. We will. And I and I think it's probably more realistically four stars, but I don't know. It really hit me the other night. I was coming off of feeling sick. So I was like, maybe this is what I need. Uh, and my partner really loved it. And I just, yeah, I was really, she gave it four stars and it was really, I think it was really nice to see how much it resonated with her on a first watch as well. And I do think that the You Are Good episode helps set up a lot of the really emotional themes of the film that like, I think are really relevant to the enjoyment of it and not getting caught up in the the teacher student thing but realizing that it's like it's just a symptom of the it's a it's a movie about a boy who wants to be grown up he just wants to be a grown-up uh and he can't quite figure out what life is going to look like when he's a grown-up and there's all that and i think we all can kind of relate to this kind of scary feeling of getting older and what that means um but that's great 
But you know what else is great? Something I would love to talk about. In between our last recordings, the Criterion Channel announced their April lineup and holy S, it is crazy. We have to talk about the (laughs) April lineup on the Criterion Channel. April 2023. If you're listening to this in like five years, it's probably past. But if you're listening to it now, it's next month. Who knows? I mean, sometimes these films circle back around. I see some films in here that were on the channel when I first got my subscription, and I'm really excited to catch them this time because I did not get the opportunity last time. But I want to echo your sentiments. Yes, it is crazy what is coming to the channel. I'm so stoked. I'm going to run through them with you. But I just got to say, like, there are some months where you look at what they're coming out with and you're like, I don't really I don't, I don't care or I, I don't really know any of these films like this is going to be a boring month and then you go and you watch some of these films and they're phenomenal and mm-hmm. they stick with you forever and they just become some of your favorite movies potentially but it's also super super exciting when you take a look at their slate and you're like oh oh my gosh i've always wanted to see that oh that sounds really interesting so the first collection we have up is going to be the one i am definitely the most excited about Harken back to when I said, all you need to get me hooked is the words psycho and sexual. Uh, (laughs) Our first story from the Criterion Collection, that's going to be a collection of 18 films. That is going to be their erotic thrillers collection. This is going to have films like Body Heat, Jade, Body Double, The Last Seduction, The Bedroom Window, starring Isabelle Huppert, Flesh Tone from 1994, Mm. something I've never heard of. Your beloved Bound. My beloved I am is finally here. going to watch Bound, Mackenzie. <gasps> really? Oh, oh, yes. I've got to see it now. Oh, everyone, if you watch one thing on the Criterion Channel next month, please, God, let it be Bound 1996 by the Wachowskis. I, it is inching closer and closer to a 4.0 rating, and my eyes are glued to the letterbox rating because it would <laughs> elate me if it crosses the ever- high mountain of getting to 4.0 average on Letterboxd. Other amazing films that are going to be in this collection are Paul Schrader's 1990 film, The Comfort of Strangers, which I'm committed to giving another chance. This was a Mm. DNF for me last year. I just thought it was really boring. But as you and I keep on talking about, we've become better film watchers the more films we watch. And so I'm excited to give this another shot. Also going to be in there is poison ivy from 1992 i believe yeah. this is the film starring drew barrymore in one of her comeback bits to be an adult film star not adult as in pornography but yes. just more adult dramas uh shed off her child star persona from mm-hmm. like films like et etc um i just remember this trailer for poison ivy being on the dvd of a film we owned as a child and it's scaring the living daylights out of me <laughs> just the thought of like you know i don't know like your friend sexuality infiltrating your life and wanting to sleep with your dad i think is basically what happens in that movie from what i can tell yeah i I didn't grow up in a very conservative household and i didn't grow up in a religious household but there was like this like idea that like evil sexuality and the evil woman was so scary and like that is such a uh backwards and retrograde way to look at the film so i'm excited to check it out and give it the attention that it deserves and then the last one i'll highlight from this collection is going to be 1992's seminal erotic thriller basic instinct which i really 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 want to see I have not seen Basic Instinct. It was funny because what I know about Poison Ivy is that I, one, Drew Barrymore looks gorgeous in that movie. If you just Google it, like, Mm -hmm. 
Hashiwana. Um, but like <laughs> there was this, eventually I will write down things, but I was sort of looking at queer cinema history. And in the early nineties, Basic Instinct and Poison Ivy both fell into this sort of like kind of evil bisexual trope because I believe yeah. do believe that Poison Ivy uh, Drew Barrymore is bisexual in that. Um, so I'm very interested to watch that. I'm also interested in Sister Sister if that is the De Palma Sister Sister. That, that is something one's actually on the channel right now. You can watch it right now. Oh, there we go. Because I know I want to watch that. And I love Body Heat. Yeah, it's going to be in this collection along with Body Heat. But you can go ahead and watch it right now if you want to get a jump on this erotic thrillers marathon that we're all going to be partaking in. <laughs> um so yeah, and there's also the last one. I know I said the last one was Basic Instinct, but the last one I'll highlight is falls into that kind of like, you know, dangerous woman, possibly bisexual category, single white female, <laughs> also from 1992. Oh, wow. That's coming. That's wild. Yeah, I've heard of that movie. 92, really the year for the erotic thriller. Poison Ivy, single white female, Basic Instinct. Yeah, those well, all came out in 92. I watched this really interesting video about showgirls, which is maybe you can even cut this but it was talking about how yeah the early 90s had all these erotic thrillers and then i forget it was like the shift in the cultural like showgirls was like 96 or something 97 i think and it was like right near the end of the 90s there was this flip switch of like puritanical anti-sex shit that started happening and that's when all of these kind of psychological erotic thrillers like went to zero pretty much immediately um, I think it has to do with maybe a shift in uh, presidency. A lot of people saying I, I, the, the article or the video I watched said it was tied to the Clinton scandal that people thought that people really retracted from sexuality because of that. So I think that's there's something there. There's a thesis yeah. there somewhere with the yeah. idea of the erotic thriller kind of dying in the that's, mid 90s. No, that's really interesting. Uh, if our listeners want to listen to a way more popular podcast and one that's very one that has a much higher production value, they can listen to Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This, and she just wrapped mm. a season on erotic 80s. So she covers all the erotic thrillers from the 80s, and she weaves in the narrative of like exactly what you're talking about, like the political landscape and the societal uh, landscape and all that. And she's got one coming up, a second part of that series. That's erotic 90s. So this is going to be... <gasps> it it's going to pair up. very well with this. Yeah, it might. Yeah. Mackenzie... It wasn't enough for them to just put Bound, one of your favorite movies of all time, it on wasn't. the collection next month. They are also putting basically every single thing that David Lynch has ever directed, not just his feature films, but a bunch of shorts, this cartoon I'm hearing a little bit of buzz about in the Discord that we both inhabit, the 70 millimeter VHS Village. What is this cartoon that they're putting up? Tell me a little Dumbland? bit about it. Yeah. Oh my God. So Dumbland is a eight episode. There were like 10 minutes max. Some of them are like five, four minutes. It is a crudely animated um, sh little series called Dumbland that I think David Lynch animated and voiced everything by himself in his home randomly in the early 2000s. And he would put them up on the internet. And I refer to it, I got to see, so um, Music Box in Chicago did a David Lynch retrospective uh, last year that was amazing. And they had Dumbland on film. They had it converted to film so that we could watch it in the theater. And uh, it's, I call it David Lynch's South Park. Like it's really like crude potty humor oftentimes. Like the first episode revolves around a man who might be having sex with a duck. Like that is what it is. Um, it's very crude. It's very weird. Um, if you 
imbibe substances of any kind, I recommend that if you watch it. It's very <laughs> just like, I think it in total takes you maybe like 30 something minutes. Um, it's really weird. And I cannot believe that Criterion is putting it on the channel. <laughs> um, but it's it's like, it's fun for what it is. There's a little song that a bunch of ants sang. I posted it in our Discord. Uh, if anything, skip to the ants episode, which I believe is the last one. And just experience the song that David Lynch sings as an ant. It's really, it's really great. But I mean, I can't believe most of his movies. I find it strange that Blue Velvet is missing. Yeah, it's my favorite Lynch and it's not going to be in here, but I own it. So I think I'm good. But everything else is, and I'm, I personally, the only one I have not seen from him is Inland Empire and the Criterion Edition is going up. So this is perfect. I can maybe finally fill like that final slot of all the David Lynch movies. I can finally watch the one I have not seen. I'm excited for you. But yeah, like you said, Inland Empire, the entire Criterion Edition is coming up. And for our listeners who are not subscribers and are not aware, basically when a Criterion Edition goes up to the channel, that just means they're going to put all the supplements, all the special features up with the film. So they're so Inland Empire is getting the Criterion treatment on the channel. And so is his 1997 masterpiece, Lost Highway, mm-hmm. which is another favorite of mine from Lynch. Uh, Mahalan Drive is going back up. Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, the constant on the channel. It's always on there, it seems to be. It's going to be included in this collection. We're getting a racer head back up on the channel. And then two that I've never seen on the channel are going to be added. His 1984 adaption of Dune. Mm -hmm. So very exciting. I'm going to be checking that out. And then his Oscar winner, The Elephant Man, is going to be on the channel, which I've never seen. Now, I believe that one does not come out on the channel until May 1st. So you're going to have to work your way through Lynch's filmography all of April so you can get ready for that big one coming May 1st, The Elephant Man. It's a good one. The The Elephant Man is the reason why we have uh, makeup's uh, Oscar in the way we have it now because the makeup in that film was so impressive that there was like petitions that were like, we need to award people who do amazing work like this. And there you go. It was birthed. The new makeup, makeup and hairstyling Oscar was birthed from the old. I did man. not know that. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, and so other things that are going to be added to the channel come April are the short films of, I hope I get this right. Uh, Fanta Regina Nacro um, looks like this is going to be a few short films from, and I quote the first woman from Burkina Faso to direct a narrative film. Uh, they appear to address complex social issues with a gentle, subversive, lightly comic touch, tackling everything from AIDS and sexual health to gender roles in relations to the evolving place of tradition within the modern world. Wow. Those look really interesting. A black woman for us to check out her short films. We're also getting a fair amount of short films and feature films from Harold Lloyd. It's going to be a collection of 42 films, which wow. are from the early periods of cinema um the title card for this is that very famous image of harold lloyd i believe hanging from a clock tower from what appears to be like a silent screwball comedy of sorts i'm not exactly sure please don't quote me on any i of believe this. it is from safety last which is his most popular um film yes yes um so we're getting 42 films from harold lloyd safety last included bunch of other things that i don't have time to go into at this moment uh and then the final big collection that we're getting is going to be eric romer's tale of the four seasons which includes a tale of springtime winter summer and autumn 
Ooh. I have not seen a lot of Eric Romer films, and I'm no. really excited to check this out because one of his films, Boyfriends and Girlfriends from the mid 80s, is one of my favorite films of all time. So I've heard that Ooh. these are amazing. Um, he really works in like really melancholic and very subdued, like palettes of both visual and emotional, uh, you know, devices. So he's a very interesting French filmmaker. Excited to check these out. And then one of the last things I'll talk about here is going to be the one and only exclusive streaming premiere that's coming to the channel for the month of April. That is going to be a UK filmmaker, Debbie Tucker Green's film from 2021, I believe. It's called Ear for Eye. Um, I don't know really anything about this film, but when I saw them drop their teaser for the month of April, I added it to my watch list on Letterboxd. What they say about it is that with this riveting adaptation of her acclaimed play, Debbie Tucker Green pushes the boundaries of stage and screen alike. So it looks like a screen adaptation of a play that she wrote. Um, It's got an amazing soundtrack, it looks like. We got Run the Jewels, FKA Twigs, and Cano on the soundtrack. Looks really interesting. It looks more like it might be a ensemble film, but it looks like it stars the formidable Lashana Lynch. Who we all just, most of us saw in The Woman King and Matilda the Musical this last year. Uh, she's also technically in the Marvel, the MCU. Is she? Uh, yeah, she's Maria Rambo um, mm. and Captain Marvel. Um, oh. She's good. That was, I think that was a fine movie and she's good in that. Last but not least, and this is not all that's coming to the channel, but we're crunching for time here, people. We have one more criterion edition that is getting added to the channel in april that is not going to be included in one of the previous mentioned collections and that is going to be a recent addition to the collection spine number 1141 via day from mm. 2021 by director jessica bashir and what the criterion collection says about this is that jessica bashir's trance-like documentary is a ravishing sensory experience that hovers between consciousness and dreaming. We'll also be getting three short films by Bashir and a selected scene-to-scene commentary featuring Bashir and poet Laden Osman. Never heard of this movie, but I have to say I'm excited to check it out. I saw it when it was like added and I got interested in it pretty immediately, so I'm excited that I can watch it now. So I know you're excited for Bound. I know you're excited for some of these erotic thrillers. Mackenzie, is there anything else I talked about or mentioned that you're excited to see? Um, I mean, yes, everyone watch Bound, please. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to pick up another Lynch because I watch his movies all the time. Um, but other than Inland Empire, I am really excited to see Harold Lloyd. I've been wanting to watch his, you know, he has a couple that are in the collection, like uh, Speedy and The Freshman. So I've been really wanting to watch those. Um, but I think out of the ones I've like never heard of, I am really interested for the, the short films by Fanta Regina Nacro because I feel like that seems like very cool to me uh and so i'm i think that's like in terms of the things i don't already know things that are new to me uh that's what i'm most excited for actually i'm really interested just based on how criterion writes about the kind of themes that she's tackling in her work i'm i'm really interested to see that is there anything you're excited for her i'm excited for so many of these also you pronounced uh chanta regina necro's name flawlessly i think i butchered it i don't know if that's right i just said it with confidence and it might be completely wrong (laughs) no but it came across really well Uh, but i'm excited for her short films i'm really excited for eric romer's tale of the four seasons i've Mm -hmm. really been wanting to get more into him since seeing boyfriends and girlfriends last year really excited to 
catch a couple more lynches uh and yeah just that erotic thrillers collection i'm gonna be spending a lot of time inside that bubble on the criterion channel but yeah no i'm 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 beyond stoked for so many of these in terms of the lynch short films i do want to recommend to you the grandmother that's coming and it's very weird but it's for (laughs) me one of his short films with the most distinct sort of storyline going on if you can even say that it's really abstract. It's super strange. It's from 1970. Um, it's very kind of dark. It's about a little boy who just wants a grandmother. Uh, and it's very, it's just very interesting. So that's another, if people are into the Lynch's, it's very abstract. So if you're not a fan of Lynch's more abstract stuff, I don't know if you'd dig it. But if you're like wanting to dip your toesies in, grandmother's weird, <laughs> but good. So the time has come. To lip sync for your life. No, the time has come for us to talk about our main event, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Ian, do you want to lull me in to Mr. Wilder's world? I would love nothing more. <laughs> By number 396 from 1951, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole is one of the most scathing indictments of American culture ever produced by a Hollywood filmmaker. Kirk Douglas gives the fiercest performance of his career as Chuck Tatum, an amoral newspaper reporter who washes up in the dead-end Albuquerque, happens upon the scoop of a lifetime, and will do anything to keep getting the lurid headlines. Wilder's follow-up to Sunset Boulevard is an even darker vision, a no-holds-barred expose of the American media's appetite for sensation that has gotten only more relevant with time. Ace in the Hole. How'd you like to make yourself a thousand dollars a day, Mr. Booth? I'm a thousand dollar a day newspaper man. You can have me for nothing. When he says the name of the movie in the movie, you're like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. There's the name of the movie. <laughs> he said this is this, the Leo pointing at the screen. Gif. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know that's such a tired trip at this point, whenever this exact thing happens, but it's exactly what it is. It's like, hey, hey, I, I caught it because it's very subtle. It's not like we've got an ace in the hole. No, he says it very quietly. He's like, yeah. he's an ace in the hole. He's an ace in the and hole. And the way that Kirk Douglas talks in this movie, it's so weird. He's, he's so good. Um, you had no seen chopped this chicken before. liver, no garlic pickles. That 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 has been sticking with me for hours now. You haven't seen this film before, have you? No, I've never seen this movie before. We I discussed it a bit on our top um, tens. Obviously, I love Billy Wilder. I think the first film of his I saw. I'm trying to think of which one it would have been. Probably Double Indemnity. I think that was like the first noir I fell in love with, and I was like, oh my god, movies can be this good excuse me like (laughs) i was very i was like what and uh immediately sought out sunset boulevard because i'd heard that name a million times and sunset boulevard blew my head off of my shoulders and directly to the moon i could not believe sunset (laughs) boulevard exists and i was like wow this guy's this guy makes good movies this guy has anybody heard of this guy (laughs) um and then right after that 
my fiance blind bought some like it hot which is also in the collection that we can do watched that loved it weirdly you would think it would age poorly and actually it ages so much better than you think it would yeah and then recently watched the apartment uh blew my mind it's i need to rewatch it and sunset boulevard again because i need to figure out which one's my fave billy but both of them i love so i've been on a big billy wilder kick so that's a big reason why I chose this, because it was the only one in the collection I hadn't seen before. Um, and I didn't really know anything about it. You want to know something very funny based on the cover of the Criterion cover? I assumed it was like about Kirk Douglas getting stuck in a hole or something. Hmm. And it's very funny because apparently that was um, intentionally part of the marketing when it first came out was that all of the images was that like Kirk Douglas, like looking feral coming out of a hole because part of their advertising, they wanted people to be more interested in it because it was like Kirk Douglas in a cave. Uh, and so I find it very funny that I, I got duped like 1951 audiences. <laughs> uh, so it was very interesting coming to this movie, basically knowing nothing about it. Um, so you also, this was also a first watch for you, correct? Yeah, and I don't know if it's just the confirmation bias of you picking it last week, but as soon as you picked it, I started to see it everywhere. Hmm. It's like in the Discord, amongst uh, all the people I follow on Letterboxd, just in the world. I think it even like sold out during the most recent Criterion Collection flash sale. Mm -hmm. um, apparently, it's like a huge movie that I've just never heard about. Um, and I've never even seen anything with Kirk Douglas in it. And I've seen like basically the seminal Billy Wilder films. I've seen some like it hot. I've seen double indemnity. I think I've seen like one more, but not much beyond that. You've done a little bit more digging into his filmography and oeuvre than I have, but yeah, no, um, I also just have a reputation for not being super big into old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I don't like the films that I watched from that era. It's kind of like whenever I do watch a film from before the 60s, I'm always surprised about how good it is. If you take a look at my letterbox stats, my highest rated decade is the 1950s. There's not a lot of five stars in there, but everything is just consistently like really good. So I give it higher than average ratings. So yeah, no, when you pick this, I was super excited to kind of give it a visit and just to watch more from Billy Wilder because the guy's a king of dialogue he just yes. writes the most quippy one-liners and everything is so delicious especially coming off the tongues of the people he chooses to cast and kirk douglas is such a good fit for him and we'll get into it a little bit later i just thought he was so magnificent in this film he's really really good i mean it's i was trying to describe to rachel earlier i was like he is playing the most the biggest piece of shit like i've ever seen truly like it takes a really good actor to play a role so delectably unlikable i think Kate blanchett is a really recent example of like tar we know is a bad person right but god she's so fun to watch because Kate blanchett is just so magnificent in that role and i felt the same way about kirk douglas like this guy is the worst. He's so awful. He's exploiting the health, the life of this poor man that got stuck in, even we can get into it. That man's not perfect either. Like he has his mm -hmm. nuances. And I think that's part of the brilliance of that writing, but like he's exploiting this man and many other people for his own gain, as well as just like slapping the hell out of the woman, the one woman in the movie, choking her out, being just a general, general asshole to everyone he interacts with. But Kirk Douglas is so good. You like love watching him because he's such a 
such a creep and he also gives these moments of i hate it to say it softness to this character like the moment where um the oh i can't remember his name leo but say it's so pom- prominent when leo is getting his final rights they and they're lingering on kirk's face of him mm-hmm. taking that really i think that's the moment the guilt hits him the, the the true real like reality of the guilt of what he's done hits him it's just like it takes an amazing actor to be able to play that on their face and yeah i've never seen kirk douglas anything either and i was like he is so good surprise i guess kirk this very famous actor is very good at his job yeah and he he's beyond good at his job but i always had like this uh impression that kirk douglas was like this shining beacon of american goodness i always Mm. had this conception that kirk douglas was a you know a a good old boy like you know he was like full of old-fashioned machismo and just did the right thing etc and then i was like i'm very familiar with his kid Mm -hmm. who is about six times my senior so fuck me for calling him a kid uh (laughs) michael douglas who always plays like slime balls less so these days but like became famous for playing slime balls and i caught myself thinking a couple times during watching ace in the hole like okay kirk douglas is like a total slime ball and then there's this moment where he takes the flashlight off of the police officer to go in and find leo it's when he's first getting involved in this in these circumstances and i was like okay this guy's a slime ball but he's a badass like there's just so much (laughs) charisma and machismo and like gung-ho-ness oozing off of kirk in all these scenes um chuck the character and uh but you know at the end of the day it's all in service of like the story for him mm-hmm. so like i think that's where like even if you start to think like oh my god i want to be this guy you're quickly reminded by the portrayal of the character that like oh wait no this guy's a fucking jerk like he's the worst um because it's all about the praise uh for him I mean, when he first shows up, you know, I, I love something. One of the best parts about the long goodbye, Robert Altman's the long goodbye. Speaking of Robert Mm -hmm. Altman, as we did last (laughs) week, is how many surfaces Elliot Gold can light a a match on. That is one of the best parts of that movie. If you just look up the compilation of Elliot Gold, like he, he lights a match on like a puddle at one point. And you're like, that's liquid. How did you do that? (laughs) Uh, And I, the second you meet Chuck, He's that light on the typewriter is so yeah. cool. The way he activates the typewriter and yeah. keeps the match in the same spot. And like, it's just, you're right. He enters, you're like, this is the coolest guy ever. <laughs> yeah. The ding and the matches on fire yep. and he's smoking his cigarette. And also just that, that, that opening quote. I don't think it's the first thing he says in the film, uh, but you know, tell your boss, how would he like to save $200 a day? <laughs> and then it's like the it's like the it's like the thing that spielberg is always so good at it's like the setup and payoff and it's i think spielberg gets it from wilder because this is a constant thing for wilder it's like the setup and payoff of actions but also dialogue and in this instance it's the dialogue and it's tell your boss how would he like to save 200 dollars a day you know you have the interluding actions and then it's like i'm a what does he say i'm, I'm a like a 500 man yeah. or something yeah yeah, it's like I'm a five hundred dollar a day paper man, and you can have me for two hundred and fifty or something like that. You know, I'm getting the, I'm getting the mathematics off. I'm not really that good at math, but yeah, it's that idea that like this guy's 
a he's so confident but b he's also so desperate um Mm -hmm. and like it's the mixing of those two different things the guy's approach here is that like i know i'm the fucking best but also like i really need this please i'm begging you on my hands and knees give me this job at this rundown newspaper in the middle of you know butt f nowhere albuquerque also this movie's really rude to albuquerque my mom and dad are from albuquerque (laughs) and i was like personally offended uh but also i hate albuquerque so i kind of understand where he's coming from (laughs) um yeah i think kirk douglas is just phenomenal in this role and the movie is really made by him uh before we go anywhere else though into this film i want to make sure we don't forget about jan sterling because she is fantastic you were talking a little bit about how mean and bad Kirk Douglas's character Chuck is. Uh, and you use the scene when he's roughing up Jan Sterling's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is her name? Let me pull it up. Her name. Lorraine, right? Lorraine. Yes. She's Lorraine yeah. Minosa. Yeah. So when he's roughing up Lorraine, he's amazing in that moment. But Jan Sterling is playing so much in the eyes and so much in the yes. face because she has this like really, really, really sudden switch from like elation like i'm making all this money leo's not here i don't have my drag of a husband bringing me down and then he's like slaps her across the face and is like you better start frowning and you better start crying you better start selling this story and she has this shift where she just goes to utter devastation of like being brought back down to earth and realizing like the situation that she's in she doesn't give a shit about leo but she's like i'm so stuck underwater here and you know i yeah she's she's phenomenal and i think she's just as essential to ace in the hole as kirk douglas no she i know exactly the moment you're 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 referring to because it's like right after the slap you just see it in her eyes it's this brilliant little shift and it's so subtle and i think that's something i love about billy wilder movies is that a lot of times um the performances yes there's the heightened performance aspect of the genre but he does there's some moments in his act that he brings on his actors that feel so modern like they feel like those little internal clockworks that are moving within these actors whenever he hones in on that it just feels so modern in such an amazing way i think that's why i love his movies because they don't feel as alienating i guess mm-hmm. uh and she's really great and i i find like her place in the story really interesting too because i think especially in the like scene where he tries to choke her with the mink you know i think that like tatum chuck tatum is putting so much of his guilt that he's refusing to feel onto her he's like you should be feeling bad about this you should be the one crying you should you're the wife it's not me i'm the report like i think he's he's trying to like suppress the fact that he knows he's done a bad bad thing by like taking it out on her uh yeah like she's just a really interesting character the way she deals with that she stabs him with the scissors like yeah crazy that yeah she's really really good and and also lee i also after you're done i see you you have a point too but I, the actor that plays leo amazing i'd love to get into him next too yeah absolutely um but no what i was gonna say is that modern is absolutely the right word and you'd be hard-pressed to make the argument that like wilder's dialogue is modern but his characterizations are so modern and i'm going back to this again the people that he chooses to populate his movies whether or not they felt modern in other films, they always feel so modern in his films. 
it's absolutely a tribute to the characters and the actors portraying those characters, but it's also to Wilder's writing and his direction of those uh, actors in that writing. I'm like backing myself into like a, a word wall here, but like what I'm really trying to say is that like Jan Sterling's Lorraine is so modern. She plays her so modern. And what I really loved about the character is that she never actually like lacks the agency in a way that we associate with women of the time. Like mm. you talk about, she stabs him with the scissors, like, and she's always like looking out for herself. I didn't really feel like she was a archetypal, like film noir femme fatale. I feel like she had really real reasons and good reasons to want to get out of a situation. Cause as you alluded to up front, Leo, the man trapped, like he's in a bad situation, but he's not perfect. Like he's been less than great to his wife and she wants out like she wants to go find a better life for herself so i didn't just see the character or sterling's portrayal of the character as like i'm a lady and i'm bad because i'm a lady <laughs> like she was so much more nuanced than that and i think this kind of like starts to get us into like the deeper themes of the film where it's like this is all a rat race like mm -hmm. uh the the american dream or like the narrative that each of us kind of try to pursue in life in order to get ahead it's such a i'm going to use this word maybe a couple more times throughout the course of the episode it's such a rat race and i think lorraine recognizes that and she's a little bit more savvy than your average person and she's like i gotta i gotta look out for me yo um yeah. i think wilder writes really great women like i mean i think that like I can see the respect and love he has for women because he writes really interesting women. I mean, um, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's character in Double Indemnity has so much agency. She's so smart. She is always like two steps ahead of all the men in her life. Uh, she's playing them all like fiddles. She's an amazing character. I think that Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard is one of the greatest female characters ever written. Like, and, and, and that performance is just one of the greatest ever. And even like with some like it hot, you know, Marilyn Monroe was subjected to a lot of kind of bimbo-y characters because that was the archetype she fit in. But I even think her character in Some Like It Hot has so much warmth and kindness and agency and like he doesn't overly sexualize her. The characters may, but then they have to see the human being beneath. And that is the brilliance of Wilder's writing of such a nuanced character for Marilyn, which she didn't always get. So I think that Wilder writes really wonderful female characters. Um, yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think like I think the evidence in the Stanwyck character from Double Indemnity is that it's her most enduring character. Um mm -hmm. the first thing most people think of when they think of Barbara Stanwyck is probably double indemnity. If not that, then maybe one of her screwballs like um, Lady Ball Eve of Fire, something. the Lady yeah. Eve. But I always remember her as the, you know, the the femme fatale yeah the femme fatale but like the best of the femme fatales and then yeah. what you go to say about marilyn is 100 percent true like she always gave every single role she inhabited her best and her all i love every single marilyn performance i've ever seen i never really love the movies she's in but i always love the i love the human beings that she's inhabiting mm -hmm. and i think wilder's version of marilyn monroe on the silver screen is probably the best version we ever got of her because yeah she is just so warm and kind and she's not the smartest tool in the shed but she's not a dumb bimbo she's yeah she's got layers to her um 
Yeah, no, Wilder just knows how to write him. And speaking of writing him, you want to talk about Leo. I think his scenes are some of the best written in the whole movie. His monologues he has and his they they continue to strike me more and more each time we came back to Leo. Because what a challenge that is, I think, for like just across the board, for the actor, for the writer, for the director, that this man is he's stuck in this one place and you're basically you're having to write this man slowly dying. And I just think all of his scenes with Kirk Douglas are amazing. This actor, I want to make sure I call him out by name, um, Richard Benedict. It's just amazing. By the time we get to the end and there's that scene of, of him getting his rights and the way he's looking at the priest, you know, I, I don't know. He's just, I, it's hard to even explain. I just think that for me, the best parts of the movie were his performance in a movie with a lot of amazing parts to it. I just was so captivated every time we were down there with him because I just found him to be so like, I understand that he wasn't the best husband and we could even get into the aspect of like Wilder's layering in this sort of tiny, just like right below the surface theme of cultural appropriation. Why is he, you know, trying to excavate a native american cave specifically you know like we could tell that leo there's these hints that he wasn't maybe the best guy but i feel for him so badly and it is so heartbreaking how close he is to getting out but because of kirk douglas's or because of tatum's not the actor you know what i mean but because of tatum's selfishness um this man dies the blood is on tatum's hands uh, and it's just, I wasn't expecting that. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, wow. And I thought Leo Benedict, I, if his performance wasn't so effective, that death might not be as uh, impactful as it was. But he's he's brilliant in this movie, I think. Yeah. I think there are a lot of actors in the modern world who would be very excited to play somebody who just got to lie down all day during shooting and deliver <laughs> their lines from a bed. But it's really hard to do. And I think that Benedict like does it really well. I think that, you know, it's really hard to just sit in one place and and bring to the forefront all that emotion and all the nuance that he does with Leo. And I mean, he wasn't my favorite part of the film because um, Douglas is so magnetic and Sterling is so you know awe-inspiring but like he definitely has like the most emotional weight behind him i really did feel for the character at many points during the film and those scenes where they're talking to each other chuck and leo uh spaced together by at least 10 feet through this little tiny hole are so impactful and they really move the story along it's also such a credit to wilder's writing that these scenes have so much momentum to them you know it's wilder's writing but it's also the dynamic between leo and chuck though you know he wasn't my favorite part of the film uh, as i've already stated but like those scenes are some of my favorite moments in the film i was reading a little bit about the film and one thing that always comes up with ace in the hole is that it is just as relevant today as it was over 50 years ago Mm -hmm. um and you know i have the words rat race written down in my notes numerous times because like it's about that for everybody. It's about that for Sterling's character. It's about that for Douglas's character. It's about that even a little bit for Leo down in the hole. Like he was chasing riches and he got stuck because he was messing around with what he shouldn't have been messing around with. Um, not even to mention the sheriff 
um, and Herbie, the young hotshot photographer, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, it's, I was telling Rachel uh, that it was nice that we're not necessarily having to solve this movie like we were with our more dense films we watch, because I do think that a lot of the themes are fairly obvious here. I think there's a lot of different ways to feel about them, but I mean, there's the literal media circus, right? The circus is 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 gone the circus has ended as he says or something along those lines when leo dies um it i think that like and the reason why i think it's still relevant today is because i do think honestly since the trump administration to today i mean honestly the last like 20 something years of american media has shown us that journalism is one of the most powerful weapons in the world and it can be used for good, but it can be used for a lot of horrific evil. Mm. And I think that like, as we continue, I mean, it was so bad. I mean, like think about post nine 11 to now it's just continued to deepen in pretty bad ways. (laughs) And and media and journalism is now can often be used in the wrong hands as a tool of radicalization and a tool of obsession. And I think that that's what leapt out to me in this film, right? This, do these people who are here really care about Leo or do they care about the story? Do they care about being adjacent to history? Do they ca- really care about the human being that's going to die here? Down to the point of like the sheriff, there was a line right at the end that made me be like, oh my God, because I think it's Herb, Herbie has this little line where he or one of the well maybe one of the the um journalists who come to kind of gloat at the end basically have a line where they say the sheriff is digging out leo to give him like a big public burial and i said i thought to myself oh my god even in death this man cannot escape being exploited like this poor man has died and yet he is still being just as exploited as he was near the end of his life and uh yeah it's just it's scathing as as criterion puts it it's i do think it's an indictment of uh, you know, I think it's a takedown of this type of journalism and this type of um, pain that can be caused from other people's suffering. Uh, I, I don't know. Like it's, it, I just think it's really interesting. I think it's really fascinating. I thought I found it very funny that this was a huge flop in 1951. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's because people came and were like, wait, are we the baddies? Like, I just don't think they wanted to see the mirror reflected back to the society. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really brilliant on Wilder's part to write something as incisive as this. And I do agree that as long as uh, journalism and media and Fox News is what it is, this will always feel like a relevant story. Yeah, no, it is crazy that uh, this thing... Or maybe it's not crazy that this thing was a flop upon release because while it's a scathing indictment of our media circus, that media circus also involves us, the Mm -hmm. viewers, uh, illicit, uh, you know, participants in our viewing of spectacle. Um, You know, I, I, I wrote down a lot of notes, but I also came across one review on Letterboxd from one of my favorite presences on Letterboxd, a member by the name of Lo McKee. And I'll just read the very first bit of his review of Ace in the Hole. I think it really eloquently speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Um, he says, quote, Early in the film, a traditional American nuclear family comes to visit the tragic scene described in the newspaper, only passing through on vacation, but hoping to get as close to the action as possible. The father says, just stopping by to take a look. This family shows up in the background throughout the rest of the movie. Setting up camp as the rescue effort devolves into a three-ring circus. 
like people driving by a car accident, craning their necks to see all the grisly details. And I just thought that was really excellent because as the film goes on, it's not just this small little family who stops by to see what's going on. It turns into a literal three ring circus. And mm-hmm. like, I know this film is set in the real world and it's told with a lot of realism, but this is absolutely insane and just wild. A literal circus comes to town in the middle of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's literally the media circus, you know, and, and I agree that that we are just as much as fault, meaning we, the, you know, the collective we are just as much as at fault as the journalists, as much as the people running these stories, the engagement in them. It's sort of what people, you know, see on Twitter where it's like, don't quote tweet that person. You're giving them the attention they want, you know. Um, yeah, I think it's I, I agree that I'm not shocked it was a flop because I doubt people wanted to confront those themes. I doubt people wanted to confront that idea of America. It's so that type of consumption of spectacle, as you said, is so tied to America and our vision of ourselves. Uh, and so and I think it's interesting because, you know, Billy Wilder is, you know, he moved to America to escape the Nazi regime. I think that maybe because he kind of moved to Hollywood from Europe, maybe he does have a more like objective outside view of America. And because he is not necessarily uh, a natural born American, he came to us and maybe was able to observe the kind of goings on, I guess. And I think that's why he is able to pick apart because even Sunset Boulevard, and not to mention all these other movies by him too much, but that is such a brilliant taking on of celebrity and obsession and this idea of relevancy and again it's about the people who are are craving this relevancy as well as the people who give the attention like i i just think so many of his movies are so wonderfully nuanced that i wonder if that is his outsider view he's always kind of been a bit of an outsider in his career and i wonder if that's given him the point of view to be able to write things as as well as this i've never really thought about it in that way but it's really fascinating to start thinking about it in that way because like yeah it's almost like look at all of you i don't think wilder thinks that he's better than a lot of people i never get that sense of superiority from his films like but i think maybe it was a little bit foreign to him coming here and seeing the way that we treat spectacle i mean i have to include myself in this i once drove by a burning car and i was like i really want to pull off to the side of the road and take a look at what's going on here because it's just it is somewhat captivating the spectacle of disorder or disaster or uh you know damage i guess you know damage to property damage to personhood but it, you know it, it was it, you know the more i think about it and the more i talk to you about it i'm having that kind of thing that you were having with three women that like walking through your own thoughts about the film you've just watched and going like man i really respect that and appreciate everything that was on screen a lot more now than i did initially um yeah and like wilder made a lot of popcorn entertainment and he made a lot of like populist media but there was always so much underneath to unpack. He's talking about the grand old American. Here it is again. Rat race. Like everybody's out for themselves. The American dream. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think we can get into it, but I'm even thinking about like, yeah, the sensationalism of like 
war and how media really instigates public opinion on the various wars we've been involved in. I just feel like you could go deeper and deeper and deeper on this movie for hours if you wanted to. I just, the more we're talking about it, I'm like, it's just this, this thread of media and journalism goes so deep with how ingrained it is in our society um, and how many things it affects the echo, the reverberations of journalism in society. It's just, so, it's, it's wild. And this movie only scratches the surface and it does so very brilliantly, I think. Yeah, it does go so deep. And it also does only scratch the surface, but like we're not even getting to this yet. It's like there's the corrupt sheriff, which Chuck gets into bed with, and there's just it's it's all woven together. You know, there's the contractor who's going to be doing the drilling to get Leo out of the hole, and everybody's in on it together. There might be people who are voicing concerns, but by and large, everybody is happy to go along with it because they know that at the end of the day, there is something in it for them. Like mm-hmm. selfishly, they are going to come out more on top than they were before this incident. Um, I even wrote down like a couple little like archetypes for each character. Um, like I was just thinking about these after I had finished watching the film and there's Mr. Boot who is said contractor. Yeah. When I like saw him when thinking about the film as like this bastion of old world morals, but he's also just the good person who does nothing well he's the he's the guy who runs the the newspaper right is he because he comes i was gonna I highlight so sorry the... you are very correct mr boot is the newspaper order and that's why i wrote down this i meant i was also thinking of the contractor yeah so no, i saw but... go ahead are you talking about that scene between him and tatum because for me that's mm-hmm. like the highlight of the film i wanted yes. to that was the last big thing i wanted to call it was that amazing scene that i do think yeah i think you're on the same thread as me highlights so much of the film yeah so yeah, Mr. Boot just being like this kind of like more conservative person. And I don't mean that in political ideology. I mean somebody who comes from a different generation or a different time where maybe ethics and morals had a higher uh, place in our society. I don't want to really I don't really want to like sink my teeth too far deep into that because like I don't think that just because you come from a different time means you have a different set of morals or better morals or better values but like in this instance when it comes down to that final confrontation between mr boot and chuck chuck is stricken with grief chuck is completely guilt-ridden over everything that he has caused to happen and mr boot is kind of like coming in and being like are you happy this is what you wanted bud yeah i I love that scene for me that i mean it was such a well-written scene it's such a powerhouse scene for kirk douglas really showing the descent that this man has taken and i loved boot there was some exchange it was something along the lines of him saying like this is not the kind of journalism i participate in i participate in journalism that does good for people i participate in journalism that helps people and uh i i just remember kirk douglas has this moment where he's beating his chest in response to that as he's taking a drink and basically saying like that's not the kind of journalism i want to do and really doubling down like he's gone so far he can't pull back at this point um, and I just love that scene. I thought that was one of the best. I mean, every scene is so well written, but this was one of the best scenes in terms of writing. And it just, and it's also a testament to Wilder's directing, right? Being able to really hit those plot beats, hit those script beats perfectly and use the camera to help elevate his own writing. Like it's just, it's one of the things that he does so well that, and and yeah, that scene was just what a perfect summary sort of of the film to me, the dichotomy of what is good journalism, quote unquote, um, yeah, I love that scene. That was the last big thing I wanted to call out for sure. 
Yeah. And not just what is good journalism, but like what is good? Like what is what is even good in this world where again everybody is only self-interested? Um the other kind of archetypes that I noticed were Herbie, the young the young boy kind of uh hitching his wagon to Chuck, you know, as like the corruption of the innocent, where you know Chuck says that amazing line where he's like everyone has to make up their own mind to Mr. Boot in that same confrontation. And then there was uh Smollett or Smollett, the contractor who, as I was getting to earlier, is the good man who stands by and does nothing. You know, he's mm-hmm. he wants he wants to do the right thing, but he just doesn't have the courage to speak up. There's obviously the sheriff who's like I think a symbol of the corrupt ruler or official. Chuck is at the end of the day, he's the profiteer though. He's the puppet master. He's the one who's organizing all the little odds and ends to make sure that everybody comes out on top because it's a benefit to him but at the end of the day it's him who really reaps the rewards and in this case the fame and glory of um you know keeping this keeping this tragedy ongoing yeah i agree it's i think there's a lot of amazing characters he's working with in this and it's just yeah this billy wilder guy you heard of him good director He's good at making movies. Yeah. <laughs> I texted that to Rachel and I said, hey, this guy's good at making movies. And Rachel said, I think you realize that every other week. And I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> he's good at making movies. Well, Ian, on that note, I feel like, I feel like, you know, the sun is setting. The book is closing. The tape deck is running out of tape. I feel like we got to get into our final thoughts so that we can wrap up this show. What are your final thoughts and ratings on Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole? I think that The Ace in the Hole is probably one of the best movies I've seen from the old Hollywood. I found it to drag kind of here and there, but overall, I thought Douglas was amazing. I thought the stuff that Wilder was wanting to talk about, especially in the 50s, was just like mind-boggling, and I just can't believe that he even got away with making this movie again. Yeah, said it. I've said it. It's not a surprise that this was a flop, Um, but it's not a surprise to me that it's continued to persist because... Everybody has said it, folks. It is as relevant today as it was back then. And, you know, before I get to my rating, I'll leave you with this, Mackenzie and listener. I'm a thousand dollar a day newspaper man. You can have me for nothing. That mm. shot of his body hitting the ground is so good. So good. <laughs> it's so good. I do not give half ratings, folks. Uh, and this is the first non-five-star film just because of a couple things that I didn't really get into because I don't like to shit on things. I like to praise things. So I'm sending a nice four out of five stars and a heart on Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Mm-hmm. Mackenzie, what are your final thoughts and rating on Ace in the Hole? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really, really cool. I think we've discussed how amazing the themes are, how amazing the performances are. I agree that it does drag at times. Like, I was shocked it was a two-hour movie. Once we're in that last part, I'm like, okay, we're moving. But there is some 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 lulls in it that could have been tightened up a little bit. Just a little bit. And, um, yeah, so I think that... And it's also hard for me not to compare it, if I'm, like, rating it in my own brain, for my own system, not to compare mm-hmm. it to the films that I think are, like, all-timers all-timers like the apartment or sunset boulevard and so i think with all that said i yeah i love the performances 
I loved the writing, the directing. We didn't really talk too much about visually, but it's visually a gorgeous film. The way he's able to light people while they're in the cave, basically with just one light source. And it's so dynamic. I'm like, movies today have no excuse. This is so silly that movies look like brown sludge sometimes when Billy Wilder has Kirk Douglas in a cave with a single flashlight and he looks amazing. Yeah. Um, and no yeah, color. So. <laughs> yeah so it's really really great i agree it's it's not maybe an all-timer billy wilder for me like some of the other films so i am also sitting at four out of five stars for ace in the hole and a fat heart fat little orange heart i agree nice little heart nice little, nice heart. little heart i love it well two four out of five star ratings billy wilder does it again folks well, before Mackenzie and I ship off, we do have a letter, Mackenzie, from our dear friend Josh from the 70mm Discord, the VHS Village. Josh writes to us and he says, Hi guys, Josh here. So excited about the podcast. I wanted to chime in with my Criterion flash sale pickups this time around. Ooh. I snagged one of my all-time favorites, In the Mood for Love, on 4K. Mm. So excited to watch yes. the two most beautiful people ever break my heart again and again i also really wanted to grab a film from a female director so i went with elaine mays mikey and nikki a blind buy for me so excited to add these to my collection thanks again for everything you guys are doing and keep having these fantastic conversations thank you so much joss we we absolutely plan on continuing to have these fantastic conversations and I'm super excited for you to check out Mikey and Nikki, one of my favorite movies. I have never seen it, but it is high up on my short list for movies for this podcast in terms of my picks. Um, it could have this it could have been this week. I was like between maybe it or Ace in the Hole. So maybe Mikey and Nikki coming very soon because I've never seen it. It is so good. Uh, super excited for Josh to check it out. Super excited for you to check it out. Of course, you and I both love In the Mood for Love. So I'm happy mm -hmm. it's in your collection, Josh. <laughs> and if you want to also give us an email, let us know anything about the Criterion channel that you're watching, the episodes that we've already done, what you're buying from your various Criterion sales, pretty much anything you want to email us about, you can email us at thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. And you can also... Email us about whatever it is we are watching next week, which is Ian's pick, connecting thematically or decade-wise or director-wise in any way they want-wise. That was inadvertently a Billy Wilder reference. You haven't seen The Apartment yet, but there's no. a whole some blank-wise, blank-wise, blank-wise <laughs> joke in The Apartment. So I they, look at me. Look at me. Um, but <laughs> whatever they pick for next week, Ian, let me in how you're connecting another film to ace in the hole and what we'll be watching i'm super excited to let you know it is i think one of the best movies ever made <gasps> it is a decade connection it is okay. somewhat of a thematic connection we are going to be watching spine number 555 directed by alexander mackendrick <laughs> a sweet smell of success Ooh, whoa, 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 whoa. yes from 1957 i believe it is streaming on the criterion channel but please don't quote me on that i am not letterbox i cannot keep all that information in my brain but i guarantee you if you have a local library near you you can go and pick up a copy criterion or otherwise 
and I'm sure it's available to rent for $4 or under from one of your preferred platforms. So yes, next week, <gasps> Sweet Smell of Success. Amazing news. What is that? Sweet Smell of Success is free on Tubi, baby. Ooh, Tubi. We love Tubi. Tubi gang, rise. <laughs> this will be technically a first watch for me. I'm very excited. I promise, promise, promise some first watches for me are coming. <laughs> but after watching Ace in the Hole and having the opportunity to connect a movie that dealt with the seedy underbelly of journalism and just kind of noirish vibes i could not pass up the chance to get you to watch sweet smell of success so that is next week but in the future i will definitely be picking a fresh watch for myself and you as well i love it well i am elated king tony curtis love him can't wait to see his beautiful face on my screen and until next time see you next week on the criterion connection listening to the criterion connection hosted by ian Layden and mackenzie wilkes you can reach us at the criterion connection at gmail.com and follow the show on instagram at criterion connection the criterion connection is edited and mixed by me ian thanks so much for listening see you next week It's also a uh, fucking hell. It's also a. It's also a credit to Wilder's writing that those scenes are just so, you know. Uh, fuck me, man. It's okay. You got it. You got it. Like, so.